You're listening to TSG Time with Patrick Fowler and Doug Spaulding, the show that tackles all things performance measurement in a half hour or less. You can expect interviews with industry legends and in-depth discussions with authors on topics that will be appearing in upcoming issues of the Journal of Performance Measurement. It's now time to welcome your hosts, Pat and Doug. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Thanks for joining us for episode six of TSG Time. I'm Pat Fowler. And I'm Doug Spalding. Today, we're joined by James Cardamone. James is Vice President, ESG Product and Strategy at FactSet. In this role, he oversees the product and content integration of ESG ratings, climate analytics, and regulatory solutions into FactSet's buy-side product suite. Prior to this, he was Director of Client Solutions at True Value Labs, which was acquired by FactSet in 2020. He also served as Director of Risk Oversight at Mackey Shields and started his career at FactSet as a consultant before moving into fixed income sales. Mr. Cardamone earned an MBA from Duke University's Fuqua School of Business and a BS in Finance and Marketing from Lehigh University. Welcome, James. Hi, guys. Thanks so much for having me. Great to have you, James. To begin, can you tell us something that most people don't know about you? Sure. So I was trying trying to think about something that people don't know about me. Um, I'll share something that I think some people do know about me is that I do have a sincere love of music. Um, I really do enjoy you know all different ty- all different types of music, making playlists and sharing those with friends. But what I would say is that what people don't know about me is that I have a sincere interest more recently um, for for modern classical music, and I think. That really comes from watching too much television. I really enjoy the music that you hear from different TV shows or, or movies. Um, one of my favorite artists in particular is, is Max Richter. And I think, you know, I listen to it probably almost more than most other styles of music now, just because, you know, sometimes you need to, as you're doing work, you need music in the background. And, you know, if I put on music with words, I tend to sing along. So it's distracting. So, that style of music is is relaxing and I think helps me concentrate. So it's something that I enjoy and um, probably, you know, most people don't know that that's, that's kind of one of my favorite genres now. Yeah. That's unique. Nice. Now you recently wrote an article that was published in the journal of performance measurement, measurable ways for performance teams to add value in ESG investing. So we thought it would be great to chat with you today on this topic. So what is ESG composite scoring and what are some of the considerations that go into constructing one? Yeah, sure. So my view on ESG composite scoring is it's sort of the concept of combining multiple third-party ESG ratings providers and even potentially some proprietary ratings as well. Um, The idea is to get sort of one view, uh, comprehensive view of ESG risk. And so, you know, unlike credit ratings, uh, one of the knocks on ESG ratings is there's very low correlations, but there's a lot of vendors out there. Uh, they, they all offer sort of different approaches. And so it can become challenging, of course, to take, uh, you know, to kind of align to sort of one methodology, one framework, and to combine the different topics that you do see. Um, however, there's value in that as well. There's actually, there's an article I read back in March um, about ESG active shares, and uh, what, it, what it came up with is that there's actually opportunity for outperformance for managers that do have sort of high ESG active shares. And, you know, what I mean by that is that if you're picking securities that have differences from, from across vendors um, and that differ sort of from the, the overall benchmark, there's opportunities to create high ESG active share and, and opportunities for outperformance there. So um, something positive from the perspective of, of low correlation. And then... On the consideration front, I think there's there's quite a few, right? So 
first and foremost is, you know, what vendors do you want to choose? There's so many different ESG ratings vendors out there. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I started earlier talking about the idea of a framework, right? So which framework do you want to choose? So when I, before True Value's acquisition uh, by FactSet, um, you know, I focused heavily on True Value. We were aligned to the SASB framework, which is more of a global framework. Um, However, every single vendor, you know, has their own proprietary one. So it's picking which sort of framework do you ultimately want to map um, the issue ratings to when you're combining them. And then, you know, the other thing that you want to do is, you know, how do you pick topics? How do you get these topics to, to align across different vendors? Um, and then are you then going to normalize those, right? So there's different numerical scales for ratings. So you probably want to do something like industry normalization where you create percentiles. And then that takes you into, okay, well, what industry or sector do I want to normalize by, right? So do you want to use GICs? Do you want to use SIX? Do you want to use on facts that we have RIVX? Um, and then what level, right? So if you are, are you separating your securities by sector, that might be too broad, right? There might be securities that are very, very different within the same sector. And then if you go down to say sub-industry, that might be too, too narrow, right? You might have too few securities and too small of a sample size. And then finally, what I would say is, the weighting scheme, right? So you could certainly average across uh, ESG ratings, but then how do you aggregate upwards? Your your topic level to the E, the S, and the G, which you're then going to roll up to a composite score. You need to think about how you're sort of weighting each of those each of those areas to then come up with sort of an aggregated value. So there's a, there's a lot of different things that go into it. And what are some of the use cases you see with clients using composite scoring? Yeah, so I think there's a few in, in the sort of pre-investment stage, right, where clients are doing their screening process and due diligence. I think there's an opportunity to take sort of the, the finished combined score and compare it to just you know, alongside your, your third-party ratings. So just almost looking at the deltas between, you know, vendor A, vendor B, and then the overall composite scoring and just seeing what you're getting there. Um, I also think it, it, it fits as sort of an actual factor alongside your fundamental factors too, right? So if you're looking at your, your income statement balance sheet ratios, um, you have ESG and it sort of gives you another lens as to how to evaluate a company and can potentially give you some insight um, either downside or, or on the upside potential when you're, when you're evaluating companies that you want to put into your investment universe. The other thing you know, from a reporting side is there's, there's different use cases there. So I think about risk mitigation, right? So say you're running an ESG strategy and you're using the, you're looking at it by composite score, say quartiles, quintiles, for example, um, you can potentially show how you systematically uh, handled ESG risk. And you can do that sort of portfolio only or relative to a benchmark. So I think there's opportunities there for, for using it in that capacity. And then finally, I would say um, optimization, right? So there's gonna be cases for alpha generation as well. Um, so maybe you wanna put in some basic constraints on tracking error, uh, security level weights, um, percentage thresholds for, for an industry, and then try to maximize the score, right? So whether it's just just let it go as high as it can go, or you want to put a percent threshold on how high you want the score to be maximized, you know, that could give you potential for seeing if there's any, um, you know, alpha generation opportunities there. And then maybe taking that one step further and potentially back testing it, depending on how how much deep history you have. You talked about reporting there. What what are you seeing on the ESG reporting and uh, attribution front? What are clients? Yeah, so so definitely a lot, right? So we've um I've been on I've had been fortunate to be on a few panels specific to ESG attribution recently. And so you know what I found from from doing some research and talking to others is there's there's a lot of people that have interest in this, but not a tremendous amount of consensus in the area. 
you know, for example, what, what, um, you know, clients and, and managers even consider what, what they're calling ESG attribution could, could vary, right? So it might just be as simple as saying, I want to look at the differential between the weighted average portfolio and benchmark uh, ESG rating, whether that's by a single vendor or composite score. Um, you know, so I think there's there's some differences there. When I think about attribution, though, I think more formally about performance attribution, how we decompose returns into a model. So we've done a lot with, um, you know, just simply taking a Brinson style model and then using something like a, a single ESG ratings provider or the composite score, which we just spoke to, and then grouping the portfolio in, in that sort of regard. Um, you know, so I think I like that approach better because I think it gives a little bit more nuance and shows how managers can, can work with different vendors and kind of pick the best in breed for their, for their strategies. So it's definitely one way we're seeing it. Another approach that we've seen is, is, is carbon-based attribution, right? So, you know, typically we're so focused on measuring um, actual financial performance, but this is another approach to actually measuring the overall level of emissions or something like carbon intensity or footprint. So you can take a Brinson style attribution and what you can do is you can actually measure the overall level of emissions. And, and it's a nice complementary analysis to your more you know, formal performance attribution. And what you can get from it is understanding within different industries, you know, where you're seeing heavier emitters. And then within those industries, sort of from a selection perspective, you know, where are you doing a better job of picking securities from an emissions perspective or footprint perspective relative to the index? Um, and then finally, something we've been investigating internally is an approach that sort of combines the two, right? So using a model to decompose financial performance, but then also creating some sort of ESG or climate factor to attribute it to. So we've been thinking about how we could do that from a carbon perspective, almost carve out carbon from allocation and selection. Now, some of the components that might need to go into that would be um, just your overall level of emissions uh, or something like, you know, the cost of carbon, which is a bit theoretical at the moment. So it's not, there's not like a hard set you know, cost, the cost of carbon, there's different prices that you'll hear. Um, but I think that could be a, a, an approach for the future as that sort of gets locked down. I think clients will really want to understand how much, um, you know, transition risk and the cost of carbon are impacting, you know, the companies that they invest in. So that could be an approach that we that we look towards in the future. Right. ESG is obviously broad and people, means different things to different people. So what, what are you seeing are the key areas that uh, managers are, are reporting on or fo- focusing on? What's top of mind? Yeah, yeah. So I would say um, that what we're seeing is a lot of uh, regulatory reporting focus, framework-based reporting focus. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, So for example, in the EU, SFDR is absolutely the focus for, for our client base. And, and that's also for you know, managers in the U.S. and APAC as well that have uses that that manage in the EU. So it's 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 certainly impacting the, you know the global um, manager environment, and then um, that's highest priority for them. We have a deadline coming up end of June for um, the Annex One reporting, which a lot of clients have you know wrapped up or are about to wrap up. Um, but then there's additional requirements too. So managers that are trying to actually launch ESG specific funds in the EU, um, Article Eight, Article Nine funds. You know, there's additional pre-contractual and periodic reporting that they're responsible for. So it's an extra layer, an extra burden for those clients to be able to do that. So, um, and you know, they have to do it, right? So they, they need reporting tools, they need the, the data sets to be able to do that. And I think it's challenging, right? Because clients are so used to, from a reporting perspective, showing financial performance, but now we're taking into account um, non-financial performance, right? The measuring of the principal adverse impacts, for example, 
which how our company is you know, financing negative externalities. So these are new, new concepts and new data sets that clients haven't been working with that they're needing to get familiar with and, and, and have to report on. So you briefly touched on carbon analytics. Are clients using carbon analytics in reporting? Absolutely, yeah. So that's definitely one of the components that we see. Um, it's it's one of the first you know handful of mandatory in- indicators for for SFDR. But also when you look at a framework like TCFD, um, that's sort of a multiple. There's multiple components to that. But the most basic being is your carbon-based calculations. Your things like your owned level of emissions, your footprint, your intensity. So we're getting that commonly requested. Um, pretty much most of the providers uh, that, that do anything in that space all have those as, as a baseline. We're also seeing providers uh, have their own sort of carbon risk ratings, right? So they're, they're, they're also addressing things like implied temperature rise scenario analysis, um, transition risk ratings, as well as physical risk as well. So we're seeing a lot of that from the likes of your, your ISS, your MCIs, the, the vendors that are, that are really getting into, um, you know, heavy into the climate space. And then another thing we're seeing, of, of course, is um, carbon offsets, carbon credits, right? So clients wanting to understand the uh, impact that those could have and how they can help maybe for the future from a transition risk perspective um, and as they manage that within the context of their overall portfolio. Interesting. And how about in style sheets? Do you see clients using carbon analytics in performance style sheets, contribution, attribution? Definitely. Yeah. So we touched upon this a little bit earlier. So Again, like the carbon style based attribution reporting where we're measuring emissions versus say financial performance. That's definitely one way that one way that clients are, are looking at um, incorporating climate analytics. Um, you know, again, exploring new models where we potentially could take financial performance and separate an effect that could be due to climate, um, you know, a carbon specific effect. And then we're also seeing vendors that offer signals that that can be sort of related to financial performance. We work with a vendor called Intelligent, and they have a transition risk signal whose their the score is very much correlated to financial performance. So we see, you know, we see clients wanting to take that sort of deep history, backtest it, and potentially create like climate-specific strategies, either with you know standalone from that score or actually in conjunction with other fundamental factors. Right. Now you have over 15 years of experience in performance measurement. So what advice would you give to someone just starting out in the industry? Yeah. So, I mean, in my mind, performance measurement, um, the, the performance teams is, is one of the most critical functions of the buy side manager. Absolutely. So I think one, one uh, bit of advice or, or guidance I would say is, you know, someone in, in that kind of role is to try to find a unique way to highlight portfolio performance that aligns to the investment manager's uh, process, right? Um, so whether it's a unique metric to attribute performance to, it's, you know, introducing a new attribution model. Um, in my mind, like the performance team, the reporting are the key lifeline to, to the manager. It's, it's, it's how they tell their story. It's how they can be you know, transparent on what they're doing. Um, it helps keep those clients, right? That's that's where that reporting is going. And it also helps win, win mandates and, and create more AUM. So the, the extent to that um, that individual focuses on on unique ways to, to really highlight the story of the manager, I think that's that's critical. That's great. So we met you when you submitted your article to the Journal of Performance Measurement. Can you uh, describe your writing research process? Yeah, um, <laughs> I would say I'm probably more of a presenter than a writer. I, I, I mean, I did write that article and I've contributed on a couple other pieces, but 
I think for me, what I what I try to do is to is to create a project, create um, a report, a chart. I like to to kind of um, you know, to to build and then to to be able to discuss what what we found. And so that's why I think you know I, I would tend to you know to want to almost demonstrate in a sense um, what what I what I found and what I have conviction on based on on um, you know you doing some sort of project like the composite scoring project or. Um, you know, running a back test or something like that. I think that that helps me be a little bit more effective on on what I can convey. Great. Any other thoughts before we move to the lightning round? Um, no, I think that they kind of covered kind of a good amount of what what we discussed in the article and some other just you know general areas of interest and 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 hot topic areas that we're seeing from from our clients. So I think I think that's uh, I think we can we can jump into the the lightning round. <laughs> We'll move, we'll move to the hot seat then. So you mentioned uh, okay, uh, <laughs> performance professionals need to tell a story. What story do you tell most often? Sure. Um, I was, you know, think, thinking about this. Um, I, I would probably say that the, the night that I, that I met my wife, I guess, would probably be a story that I tell. Uh, so from New Jersey, uh, spent many of my summers down in Jersey Shore. And, and in this case, in particular, that night, I was down at the Parker House. Um, it's, it's one of my favorite restaurant bars in, in, in the shore place I'd been many, many times before. Um, and for whatever reason, the night that, that I ran into my wife, uh, I tried to buy the first round of drinks with a credit card. However, it's a cash only bar. So um, not having any cash on me, my wife got stuck with the first round and she like, of course, never lets me forget that. So. <laughs> so. That's a great story. Now, if you were to write a book, what would it be about? And if you, if you have a title for it, what would the title be? Cool. Um, so I think I struggle enough to write a two-page article, so I don't know that would be the best to write a book. But what I could tell you is I think generally what, I, what it would of interest to me that I think I might write about. So um, I tend to, by watching a lot of television, love stories about like the positive, you know, protagonist, right? Someone who's sort of vulnerable, um, just a good overall person. I think, I don't know if either of you watched Ted Lasso. It's one of my favorite shows. It's great. Um, just a bright spot when you're, you know, at the end of the day, you watch that and just kind of feel good. So I, what I would say is I would probably try to create a story around a character like Ted Lasso. Um, I do also really enjoy baseball. So maybe the, the twist on it would be, you know, a, a player coming up to the ranks like a Ted Lasso or a manager um, in that capacity. So something like that. I don't have a title though. I'm not <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> Positive protagonist. Positive <laughs> protagonist. Yeah, no, th those are the stories that I gravitate for. So. <laughs> What's the best meal you've ever eaten? So my wife and I absolutely love to eat. In fact, we we have a, a Instagram account dedicated to food. Um, she's the one who posts more more often than not. But uh, I would I would say that our favorite, our most memorable meal was at Blue Hill Stone Barns. It's um it's a restaurant along along the Hudson River, and we actually went there and uh, we went there for a two year wedding anniversary to celebrate. And we had like a 16 course tasting menu. It was incredible. Um, we act, they actually had a printout menu and said happy anniversary and whatnot. We, we have it framed in our dining room. It was, it was very, it was very meaningful. What was really unique was during the menu, they actually give you a quick tour of the restaurant. And in, in our case, we got to step into the kitchen. So we got to see Dan Barber um, in action. He's actually, you know, one of the top chefs in the world. So that was, that was really cool. That's right near the Rockefeller state, right? Near Kia. I think so. Yeah, I believe so. Would you rather climb a mountain or go skydiving? Ah, 
Um, I would say earlier in my life, I would, I, I had always wanted to go skydiving. And then as I've gotten older, I feel like I'm a bit more risk averse. So, um, I don't know that climbing a mountain is, is less risky, but I'm assuming more like a hike than a climb. So I would probably choose climb, climb a mountain just because, uh, I, I, I don't know if I have it in me to, to go skydiving at this point. <laughs> I feel that what's the best book you've ever read. Um, so I would say the most I would say best and most meaningful book for me is The Art of Happiness. It's uh, by His Holiness the Dalai Lama and, and Howard Cutler. Uh, definitely not a beach read. <laughs> it's, uh, it's kind of a self-help, but um, it, it's something that I've read like or parts of it through the years. It's something that like I come back to. It's just kind of a, a way that you have a perspective on life. Um, I think it's it's good for like those sort of like day-to-day life challenges and you kind of, you read segments of it and it kind of resets you and, and kind of, you know, puts, puts you, puts everything in perspective. I definitely don't think it's a, an easy way to approach or it's, it's easy to implement, but it's something that, you know, you can try to aspire to at least. So. Great. Excellent. Well, thanks for chatting with us today, James. Yeah, no, I really enjoyed this. I appreciate you guys having me. Yeah. And you can read James's article in the winter 2022-2023 issue of the Journal of Performance Measurement To begin your free subscription, go to www.tsgperformance.com and click on the publishing tab. We'll be back next month, so stay tuned for details on our special guest. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to TSG Time. Remember to subscribe to the show by going to tsgperformance.com slash podcast so that you never miss an episode. And while you're there, sign up for a free subscription to the Journal of Performance Measurement. TSG is the institutionally recognized boutique performance measurement consulting and GIPS standard specialist firm serving the investment industry. Visit us at tsgperformance.com.